As you're being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, that's uh, page 965 if you're following along in the Pew Bible in front of you, or underneath you if you're on the front row. 965 out of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to actually read in context, of course, so we'll be reading verses 1 through 6 today. But our focus will primarily be verse 1. Listen carefully, because this is God's word that is for you today. Matthew 7, starting in verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see that speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. And turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. So thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh Jesus, we do thank you for this text that we have in front of us. This challenge to our lives. Lord, help us to see and hear it accurately and apply it to our hearts. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you are just joining us, you're coming in at the tail end of a series that I've titled, Ooh, So Close. Here this month, we have been taking a look at common passages that get misinterpreted or misapplied. We began our series with probably the one that I hear the most often in the church context, which was Matthew 18, which is where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. Often that gets applied to disappointing turnouts in prayer meetings, But what we discerned was that this is actually applied to going through the process of church discipline and as a promise that God will be with us even as we are confronting our brother's sin. Well, I've come here as we end this series here on this last Sunday in in July with probably the one that I hear the most misapplied outside the church. This one, Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. So often, as is the case with misapplied or misinterpreted scriptures, we just take the single verse without any consideration for the context that's around it in the passage or in the people that would have originally heard it or how it's being said. We'll rip that out so that we can make it say whatever we want it to say. And in here, judge not that you be not judged. This seems to be our culture's shield to keep us from any and all criticism, legitimate or otherwise. To simply say, well, your Bible says judge not, so you can't tell me what to do. So what we're going to see in this passage is that's not, in fact, what this passage is saying. But in order to know that that's what we're doing, we're going to take a look at it in context. So let's do that now. We're going to begin our introduction here, and then I'll give you your two points in just a moment. Here in Matthew chapter 7, we are in the last chapter of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We began in chapter 5 with a portrait of what does the Christian life look like and how it is that the law is supposed to be applied. It's not just externals, but goes all the way down to the heart. 
The Lord doesn't just condemn murder, but condemns even the heart state that leads to it, which would be hatred. It's the same thing with with sex outside of marriage all the way down to the lustful intent of the heart. This is what Jesus unfolds for us in Matthew 5. Then when we get to Matthew 6, we discover what it means to pray and what it means to seek out the Lord. And most of all, what it means to not be anxious because we've done that. And now we get here to Matthew chapter 7, and this seems to be somewhat out of place. What is Jesus talking about? That he suddenly launches in to judge not lest you be judged. So let's define that. Well, the way that we will typically think about judging is we'll say, it's like, all right, well, what judging means, and therefore what it means here, is to say, all right, well, there is a standard that we have. We're going to see if people measure up against that standard, and if they do, then we give them a passing grade, and if they don't, we give them a failing grade. So what people will say is like, aha, Jesus says judge not, so that means you can't do that. That means you can't reference a standard, and that means you can't compare me or anyone else to that standard. And some, who perhaps are beyond a surface reading of Matthew 7, might be even able to go into other passages of Scripture to seem to back up what they say. If you were to take a look at James 4, verse 12, it says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Someone else might even be able to take you to 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 5, where Paul says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. So it might seem, on a surface reading of these passages, that what God is telling us to do is mind your own beeswax and God will sort it all out at the end. But is that what Jesus, and by extension the rest of the Bible, actually saying. Because if we were to look on, for example, in James chapter 5, 19 and 20, it tells us that we are to turn away our brothers from sin. Well, if we're going to do that accurately, then we would need to know what sin was and what our brother is doing. That would sound like judgment. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, just a few paragraphs away from what I've just read, Paul is telling the Corinthian church that there's a man in there who is not living up to God's design for sexuality and needs to be disciplined and put out of the church. Well, that sounds very judgy. Is it our opportunity to cancel Paul and take him off of Twitter? Well, if we were going to come after that, we'd have to do the same thing for Jesus in Matthew 7. Because if he's going to tell us, judge not... And if he means, don't compare people to a standard, then verse 6 is really confusing. As he's telling us, don't give holy things to dogs and pigs. Now it seems like we're (laughs) name-calling. Now we're really in a bind. What are we going to do? Well, it might mean that we don't understand what the word judge here actually says. So we're going to explore that in our two points today. They're on the back of your prayer guide as an insert in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along or take notes on it. The first point is that we are called to live a holy life. It's our first point. We're called to live a holy life. And then two, we are called to help others live a holy life as well. That's what we're going to examine as we jump in here to Matthew chapter 7. So, Jesus tells us, judge not that you be not judged. And then he continues, which is usually what happens when we misinterpret something. We'll stop. 
Keep going. And he says, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. A great illustration of this actually comes from the Bible itself. Do you remember the story of King David? When King David was not where he was supposed to be at the palace instead of at war with the rest of his comrades. And he sees someone that is attractive to him that is not his wife and forces this sexual contact with her. And a prophet comes later to tell him a story. And he says there was one man who had a hundred sheep, rich man, and there was a poor man who had only one. The man who had a hundred sheep said, I've got someone coming over. He loves lamb, but I'm not going to take any from my pen. I'm going to go to my poor neighbor and I'm going to kill the one that he loves and roast it for dinner for my neighbor. Now, the prophet tells David that this has occurred in his kingdom. And David is enraged. And he says, the man who does this is going to die. He should be punished. And then the prophet turns to David and says, okay, well, you are the man of this story. You're the one who took the wife from someone else. You're the one who's supposed to be judged by this standard. This is an illustration of what Jesus is doing. Too often what we do, and this is true in, in the church and in our wider culture, as we will look at someone else who is sinning in the same ways that we are and come down on them and say, well, this is how they should be doing this. One example that I read from one of my commentators is while we rightly decry the sexual revolution that's taking place in our society and saying the the alphabet soup that we have now of sexual orientations, that this is wrong. Well, at the same time, if statistics are to be believed, that 60% of men in the church are regularly viewing pornography. If we are going to decry sexual sin in our culture then we need to make sure that we are living up to these same standards as well and that we are not participating in the very same sins that they're doing. I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he is saying judging, harshly and hypocritically judging the rest. And in fact, that is one commentator had put it this way. He says, Jesus does not forbid all moral judgment or accountability. Rather, he forbids harsh prideful and hypocritical judgment that condemns others outright without first evaluating one's own spiritual condition and commitment to forsake sin. Now, how do we know this is what Jesus is saying? It's one thing just to hear it from some other commentator writing in some other book, but what is Jesus getting at? We can see as we continue reading in our passage, he gives us an illustration, and it's a rather humorous one at that. He sees two men, both with some eye problems. The one has a speck in his eye, and the other has a housing beam in his other. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, the log man can see that his brother has a problem, but is unable to see his own problem, the log that is in his own eye. Now, we might think, okay, well, what this is saying is like this point we've just said. If you're the hypocrite, you're doing the same thing that you're accusing your brother of needing help with, then you need to, then maybe you should not judge. Maybe you need to go deal with your own problems. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus actually does not say, 
One has a log, the other has a speck. Log guy, you can't help. You might as well go over there and see if you can find a sawmill someplace. Don't worry about your brother. He doesn't say that. Instead, what he says is, get rid of the log so that you can see clearly now to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What he's talking about here, this is a real motivation for personal holiness. When we are living the Christian life, this is not meant to just be a benefit to us. Too often in American culture, it's just me and Jesus in the Christian life. That's not true. It's us and Jesus together in relationship with both each other and with Christ. And when we have a sin in our lives, we need help getting rid of it sometimes. Sometimes we can't see it because it's a, it's a speck in our eye. It's a tiny blind spot, but someone else is able to see that. But what we find here is when we see someone else's sin, but we recognize that we have the same thing in our own eye, the first thing we need to go about doing is to get rid of this thing. Take this log out of our eyes. So this isn't about judging This is about being in a place to help. And that's what we're going to explore now as we jump into our second point, that we're called to help others live a holy life. We use this position of holiness not to stand above other people and to judge, but to lovingly come alongside and help. Uh, One writer had put it this way. We have been commissioned to proclaim a message of repentance and faith to those outside of the church. They need to hear this good news. And certainly, we need to proclaim the same message of repentance and faith to those inside the church as well. This is part of the reason why we have an assurance of pardon for us every time we come to church. Because those of us who are in Christ still need to hear the gospel just as much as the outsiders do. We need to be reminded that we are sinners. We need to be reminded that Christ can forgive us of our sin. And we need to be reminded that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to be continuing to turn away from this sin as often as it comes up. This is what we are proclaiming to each other. Not done in a position of condemning but to be done in a position of coming alongside and helping. But how is this done? I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to hear someone else point out my sin. So how do we go about being someone who can come alongside gently and saying, brother, sister, I see this going on. How do we do that? Well, I think the one thing first, we need to have a firm grasp of the gospel ourselves. That we recognize Jesus is going to be the one to fix this person, not you. That you're not going to come along. You are not the Holy Spirit. You are not able to regenerate somebody else's heart. It's recognizing we have this firm grasp of the gospel in that perspective. And in the other one is that we have a firm grasp of the gospel for hope for hard cases. That we don't look at somebody and say, it's like, well, they're sinning too big for me. You're exactly right. They are for you. They're not too big for Jesus. With Jesus, there's always hope. Have that firm grasp of the gospel. And I think the second thing that we have to have is that we need to have good experience with repentance ourselves. Good confronters 
are good confessors. Good rebukers are good repenters. If you have very little familiarity with what it's like to repent of sin, you're not really in a position to help other people. That's the log in your eye, is lack of repentance. If you don't confess your sins to Jesus or to anybody else for that matter, if you say, it's like, well, I'd like to keep a firm lid on my own sin. I don't want anybody else to know about what I'm really like. Well, then you're not really in a position to confront other people, are you? People aren't going to see what you're doing as loving and helpful if they have never seen you do that either. Parents, this is really applicable to your children. If your children have never heard you confess and repent, especially to them, then you're really in no position to tell them to do that too. They need to see that their mom and dad needs Jesus just as much as they do. And it's the same thing with each other. This is part of the reason why I love the fact that we have a corporate and a personal confession of sin. And you watch me up here because I need to confess my sins just as much as you do. Just because I'm a pastor and I've got a suit and I get to stand behind this wooden box once a week does not make me less needing of the gospel than you do. I need to confess my sins just as much. And you'll notice there are some times where the personal confession of sin goes longer in some weeks than others. So I've got more work to do up here. That's why we do that. So I would confess these things aloud to one another. Because all of us need that confession of sin. And all of us need that personal confession of sin. We're all confessing that we need Jesus. People can tell when you've done that work. People can tell when you're used to confessing your sin. Because that, because then that will change your attitude when you come to someone else. This isn't going to be coming to someone else with hands on hips saying, I can't believe that you would do this. Because we're very used to our own lives. It's like, oh yeah, I can believe that. Because I remember what I was like this week. That will bring a very big difference. Christian criticism, as one scholar put it, is always constructive, not demeaning and condemnatory. This is what it means to help your brother get the speck out of his eye. It's also possible that after we have dealt with the log, we'll see that the speck that's in our brother's eye may not have even been there at all. So work with that. Because at the very least, once the sin is out of your own life, you'll be able to to accurately tell someone, hey, here's how I can get this speck out of your eye. Because Jesus helped me get the log out of mine. So let's go together and get this speck out. That's a very challenging thing, isn't it, in the Christian life? This means we all got to be pretty close to each other if we're going to do that. This means we have to be pretty thinking outside of ourselves if this is going to be the case. Most of us will barely notice whether someone is there, much less if there's a speck in their eye. This is a call to this radical community that's aware of this. And to be careful as we go about this. If we're going to hold someone else to that standard, we better make sure that we're up to that as well. Now, a caution here is then we don't say, it's like, well, I'm going to wait until I'm perfect in order to be able to help somebody with this. You'll never help anybody. 
Getting the log out of your eye is taking it to Jesus. And when it pops back in there, go back. But we're always taking it to Jesus so that we're able to take other people to Jesus to get this speck out. But now what happens when we get to verse 6 and we find someone who's not going to receive this at all? That no matter how loving, careful, constructive you are, they have no interest in getting that speck or log out of their eye. That's when we get here to verse 6. It says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Here, one commentator put it this way. It says, Jesus' disciples must not be censorious, but neither must they be oblivious to genuinely evil people. Here, what he is talking about is if we are encountering someone who, upon hearing the gospel has absolutely no interest at all and is telling you, please, don't ever talk to me about this ever again. It is then within your rights, if you want to, here in verse 6, that you don't have to continue pressing the matter. One commentator had put it this way that says that we are not called to then force this issue down someone's throat. In fact, I think we, we see evidence of this in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Listen to what it says. It says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Now, having heard all of that, if you've not been paying attention, please tune in now. This verse, as one commentator points out, does not give you permission to prejudge whether someone is ready to hear the gospel or not. You do not get to look at somebody and say it's like, well, I think that person's not going to be receptive to the gospel. Look at the color of their hair and the number of tattoos on them. They must not be receptive to the gospel at all, and I can not throw my pearls before swine. Because usually we end up casting swine to look like the people we don't like. We don't get to do that. After all, who would have evangelized to the Apostle Paul if that had been the standard? When he came to Christ, he was fresh off the killing of the church's first deacon, Stephen. And yet Christ came and redeemed him. So is there a point at which we realize, I'm not able to help this person anymore? Do we get to that point? Yes. But do we get to that point extremely slowly and prayerfully? Also, yes. I remember talking about this once with my, uh, one of my mentors, Pastor Reader, and he had mentioned that he had done this in his ministry, which at that point had extended well over 30 years, and he had done this three times. And he had ministered to thousands of people. So this is something that we go about very carefully with. But what this is giving you permission to do is if you find this in trying to correct this person, that they're just going to expose you to violence, this is just going to be a great big conflict, don't have to force the issue. Don't take holy things where they're going to be made fun of and mocked. But we do this extremely carefully. And we don't do this without at least first giving the gospel and making sure that we have at least tried This is what we're doing. So, in summary, what do we take away from this passage? Jesus is condemning here harsh 
hypocritical condemnation of other people's sin that you also take part in. Don't do that. The world is often harsh and wrong in its criticism of the church, but more often than we would like to think, we do tolerate the sin in our church that we don't tolerate in our culture. We need to clean house here. We need to be concerned with our own states before Jesus so that we're in an actual position to confront the world. There is no route here in this passage that gets us out of our duty to tell the world what God has told us to tell them. We don't get to make pious-sounding excuses and saying it's like, well, I'm not holy enough, so I can't go about the business of giving the gospel. That sounds pious, but that's foolishness. Stop that. Instead, come to Jesus. He can take that log out of your eye. He can put you on the right path so that you can guide others to him. After all, he died on the cross to make that possible. You are never in and of yourself going to be holy enough. The only reason why you are acceptable before God at all is because Jesus has died on the cross. He's taken all of your sin, all the logs he's taken out of your eye and put them in his own. And then suffered under the wrath of God to take all that punishment for you and me. And then rose again from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and now offers to you eternal life. If you'll but put your trust in him, leaving your sin behind and embracing him. You'll never be perfect. There's always going to be some stick in your eyeball you've got to get out. But as, the, as you live your life, there'll be fewer and fewer sticks. You'll notice them more and more, but there will be fewer and fewer sticks. You'll see clearer and clearer, and you'll be able to help more and more people. You can't give people what you don't have. If you've never confessed, if you've never repented, if you've never gotten anything out of, if Jesus has never gotten anything out of your eye, you're in no position to help other people. So get with Jesus. Get your help so that you can go about what he's called you to do. In a moment, we're going to come here to the Lord's Supper. We're just going to celebrate this gospel. We're not going to come to this table. We're not going to be worthy of this table because we've managed to get all the forests out of our eyes. But it's because Christ has covered us, because he has made us worthy. So let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this time that we have together as we remember and proclaim the word that's in front of us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our own sin clearly. Give us eyes to see where we're still falling short. But let us have hope that it's not going to stay there forever that we have hope that exists beyond our own sin, that one day we can be cleansed fully in your presence. Oh, let us see that day come soon. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.